Hello, and welcome to the Paddock Pass podcast. Today's show is all about the Spanish GP at Jerez. I am Neil Morrison, and you can find me on Twitter at neilmorrison87. And today I'm very, very lucky and very honored to be joined by two fine gentlemen in two different continents, one of whom is... David Abbott uh, at Moto Matters. Okay, thanks for joining us today, David. And the other is a very sleepy... Very sleepy Jensen Beeler from uh, Asphalt and Rubber and the Two Enthusiasts podcast. You can follow me at... Uh, at Asphalt underscore rubber and at two enthusiasts. And it's worth pointing out that Jensen's very sleepy, not because he's not uh, not happy to be here, but because it's what six a.m. in in Oregon at the moment. Yeah, yeah, just coming a little past seven thirty actually. I, but it was a little bit of an early morning. I'm not really a morning person, Neil. You, you probably remember this from Austin. I like to get to the racetrack around one o'clock or so and <laughs> wrap up the day around one thirty. That's a good day's <laughs> blogging. Okay, good. Well, you have a couple of cans of Mountain Dew by your side. I suggest you uh, you get cranking into those uh, while we're while we're starting the show. So before we get started, we hope you're following the show on Facebook. That's facebook.com slash paddockpasspodcast and Twitter at paddockpasspod. And if you happen to listen to us on iTunes, please be sure to leave a review and a rating because it greatly helps other MotoGP fans find the show. Okay, cool. So we're just, uh, we've just got back from Jerez, from the Spanish GP, from beautiful Andalusia. Um, it was uh, it was an interesting weekend. Perhaps um, the MotoGP race wasn't as uh, as frenetic and uh, as exciting as, as we had uh, anticipated on on Saturday evening. Um, but nonetheless, it threw up some um, threw up some interesting results. Um, lots of talking points. Um, but really, to get to the to the heart of really what happened over the weekend, I think it's. Um, it's worth going back to Thursday afternoon. Uh, there was a press conference um, which uh, Jorge Lorenzo and Yamaha's Lynn Jarvis were present, uh, and they both had something very interesting to speak about. Um, David, what, what were they there for? Uh, well, basically, they were giving away the uh, the, the the worst kept secret in the paddock. Um, uh, as soon as we got the uh, the invitation from uh, Dorna to the pre-event press conference, we pretty much knew that uh, it would be uh, that there was an official. Announcement announcement of, uh, of Jorge Lorenzo joining Ducati coming up because Lynn Jarvis would be in the press conference and normally uh, Lynn, people like Lynn are only in the press conference when there's really, really big news to uh, to uh, to announce or else all three or, well, now, you know, we've got four or five factories in there. They would have had all of the team managers in there, but uh, but they didn't. So um, it was clear that that, uh, that they were going to announce uh, Lorenzo to Ducati. It was um, it was actually quite an interesting press conference. I thought Lynn Jarvis was very. It was much more open and honest than I, than, than I expected. He is a he is a consummate politician. He's very very good at um, telling you all sorts of things, and then you walk away from him, and then you realise you haven't actually learned very much. Um, but it, he was, you know, he was very frank. He was also very frank about the. Uh, the atmosphere in the garage, because obviously that was a, a big deal. After uh, after Sepang, it became very very clear that uh, you know having Lorenzo and uh, and Valentino Rossi in the same garage was no longer a tenable proposition. Um, uh, he you know admitted that admitted you know, said that they'd made their they'd given their best offer to uh, Lorenzo and uh, he had uh, still decided to leave so yeah I mean it was uh, it, it was interesting it was also interesting seeing the body language uh, of all involved um, uh, especially I asked uh, I asked Lynn, you know if he had any regrets about the way that he had handled 
um, uh, the, the whole situation in the aftermath of Sepang and uh, Lorenzo's uh, body language was um, was extremely interesting because he sort of raised an eyebrow and looked intently at um, uh, uh, Lynn Jarvis smiling. So I think that was definitely that was definitely a um, a factor in his decision to leave Yamaha and go go to Ducati. Um, but yeah, I mean it was. Absolutely fascinating. Lorenzo now goes to Ducati for two years. Uh, he goes to try to win a race with a or a champ. Well, races and a championship with uh, another manufacturer, uh, and he goes to a situation where he will be much more uh, appreciate. Well, appreciated. Yeah, I mean, he'll, he will he will get much more attention than he does at Yamaha because obviously it's much more difficult um, uh, sharing a garage with Valentino Rossi. Basically, D- David, do you think Lynn Jarvis really gave? Jorge the best offer possible for for Yamaha because from where from where I'm looking at best offer to to give Jorge would have been not to renew the contract with Lorenzo like or sorry with Rossi like it almost seems to me like by giving both offers at the same time yeah but that that, that was never going to happen uh, I mean if you think of how much money is tied up with Valentino Rossi uh, for the future. Uh, I mean, what what would Lorenzo have done? I mean, you know, Lorenzo is a guarantee of always being uh, at least in the running for a championship for as long as he's racing. But once Lorenzo stops racing, uh, he's an Eddie Lawson kind of a, 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 a figure. When we look back at the golden era, the names that we remember are Rainey and uh, Schwantz, uh, uh, Doohan to an extent. Uh, everyone forgets about Eddie Lawson because Eddie Lawson, whenever you ask him a question, um, uh, whenever journalists ask him a question, he looks as if, you know, you were holding a turd under his nose um, steady he, eddie st- yeah, steady eddie exactly what you were saying i think in your uh, in your previous po- po- in the in the last two uh, two enthusiast podcasts he just inspires no no passion not the same kind of passion and Valentino Rossi will be selling motorbikes will be selling Yamaha motorbikes for the next 50 or 60 years so uh, I mean there is no it would make absolutely no sense at all and as we saw on Sunday it makes absolutely no sense to to, to, to sack Rossi for on on sporting grounds either because he is clearly still capable of winning motorcycle races well that that, that's kind of my point like if if I had to 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 make some sort of conjecture here I would say that Yamaha indirectly picked Rossi over Lorenzo. They picked the the money and the 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 brand that is Valentino Rossi over the I would say larger potential to win championships with Lorenzo. Uh, yeah, absolutely. I don't think I don't think it, I certainly wouldn't argue with uh, with that. But I think it, it, thinking about it, because I wrote a piece uh, before the before Jerez, uh, in which I th- said I think it was a bad move for Yamaha to lose uh, to lose Lorenzo. But thinking about it since then, I'm starting to change my mind. I actually think it was. Uh, Looking at it very, very cynically, uh, it's actually a good move to lose Lorenzo because it gives you, it gives Yamaha uh, an enormous amount of, um, enormous amount of freedom. It gives them, it, it frees, the, it, it completely clears up the, uh, the the atmosphere in the garage once he's gone. Um, uh, it means there's going to be a much better atmosphere later on. They also lose, so they lose a what is it, a 28 or 29 year old, and they gain. Uh, Probably a twenty-one or a twenty, uh, you know, a twenty-one-year-old with with perhaps the potential to match Lorenzo. Um, you know, there's 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 a lot of upside on the there's a lot of upside on this deal. Just to play devil's advocate, though, but look at how much time and energy Yamaha has invested into Lorenzo's career. 
maybe to see that go up in smoke like maybe you can answer this for me and this and this maybe answers my question do you think there's a bridge in the future for lorenzo to come back to yamaha on or or is that bridge burned no absolutely it, there is absolutely a uh, an opportunity for lorenzo to come back um uh, Lynn Java said as much in the uh, in the press conference. They did that with Valentino. Valentino could come back if it doesn't work out. Then uh, absolutely, I think uh, I think there's absolutely a spot for Lorenzo to come back. And by then, of course, if he does come back, we will probably be looking at Valentino Rossi retiring and say you've got nothing to lose. Yeah, one of the reasons why the press conference was so interesting was because Lynn Jarvis was sat next to that 21 year old who you had uh, who you referred to, David. Uh, Maverick Vinales was also at the press conference. Um, you know, and speculation is more almost by the day um, about his future about what he's going to do well, is he going to stay with Suzuki um, is he going to move to Yamaha um, by the end of the of the Hearth weekend and indeed on the Monday test he was saying some things to, to, to us and also to the Spanish press that suggested that he's maybe looking towards the Yamaha as the more viable option uh, yeah I mean w- uh, you were uh, you were messaged by a Spanish journalist Neil what did he what did he tell you yeah well it was just um, it was uh, an interview he had conducted with Vinales who, who basically repeated what he said to us on Sunday. Um, this this was just a, a day later, I think, um, which Vinales said that you know he could see the benefits of uh, of staying with Suzuki. He appreciated that Suzuki are working very hard. Um, they're you know completing a lot of things that he's asked them to do. Um, but the, the the offer or the the temptation of, of sharing a garage with Valentino Rossi, um, you know, is big. Um, there there is a potential to learn from you know the greatest rider of all time. Um, and I think he ended with the, with the line that said, you know, everyone has to choose their own path, and my path basically, ultimately, I want my path to be the end point is the uh, you know is the world champion. Um, so I'll have to see and decide in the next the next few days. Um, but basically, he, he wants to have his uh, his future decided by Le Mans. So I got a question for the both of you then on that. How much of that is an indication of Maverick jumping ship to Yamaha, and how much of that? is maybe Maverick trying to goose some more euros out of Suzuki. Uh, Suzuki have already uh, already upped his uh, they've already upped the amount they're going to offer him. I think um uh I heard rumors of numbers which I never really trust. Um but someone was saying uh, you know they were offering uh, the Yamaha were offering uh, Maverick something like four or five million and uh, Suzuki immediately ups, uh, upped that offer uh, someone with links to Yamaha confirmed that uh, Suzuki had actually done and uh, had actually done their best to uh, try and keep uh, uh, they had actually you know increased this financial offer to him um, and then I, uh, I spoke to Brivio over the weekend and Brivio basically said you know our first priority is He's tried to keep Maverick. Um, he's the he is their sort of their rider of the future, uh, and they've clearly gone for a two rider strategy where they have one potential champion or, or someone capable of one young rider they believe uh, is capable of winning races and possibly championships, and they have a, a second rider who is you know also very fast but has more is more about the experience they have, um, uh, the ability to help develop the bike and you know move it forward. Yeah, um, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. So, so what do you think? What do you think of the chances then? Uh, if we if we talk in probability terms um, of of Maverick announcing it at Le Mans that he's going to Yamaha, do you think it's sixty forty seventy thirty? I think it's uh, I think it's more like ninety or ninety five percent to uh, uh, that he, that he will announce it. The way that he was speaking in very coded language in the way that all riders do, but that what he was saying was 
um, basically he has to choose between uh, uh, trusting Suzuki to improve or be, being able to win races and championships and um, he is a, a, a he's a very ambitious young man like all professional motorcycle racers and he wants results now I don't think he can I don't think he has the patience to wait and so uh, I would be surprised if he doesn't announce at uh, Le Mans also because um, it's a monster Grand Prix and you know monster uh, are still a major sponsor of the um uh, uh they're a major sponsor of the yamaha team uh, it would also be a really nice way because when uh, when maverick goes to um uh, to yamaha then uh, he will automatically lose his red bull sponsorship uh, you know he'll become a monster uh, a monster rider and monster will want to milk that for all it's worth yeah yeah i thought i thought one of the the most interesting things he was asked on sunday was whether um the sunday's result would have any impact on his on the decision that he's going to make in the coming days and he said you know he was quite candid about about it he said of course it's going to have an effect you see two yamahas riding up front quite dominant you know more than six Six, seven seconds ahead of any other bike in the field and you know okay sure Suzuki have made some fantastic gains and the factory is working really well um, as a whole and they're kind of providing Maverick you know things that he uh, that he's asked for but ultimately uh, they were you know more than 15 seconds back I think at the flag of uh, of Yamaha and as you say he's 21 years old he's an impatient young man and he believes that he can be up there fighting for wins and, and podiums at the moment Yeah, I think the, the other interesting thing he said uh, about uh, I can't remember whether it was at Austin or, or this weekend was um, uh, he was complaining about a lack of rear grip and he basically said you know this is something I've been complaining about for the last two years since he joined and I think th the the tone of his voice made it sound like he was really really irritated so I I really think that that is a, I think we could take that as a sign that uh, he, he's you know he's going he's um, he, he's more or less made up his mind I believe also that well I, uh, I read somewhere Brivio gave him a a deadline of Lamar to make a you know to to answer so yeah we shall we shall have to wait see I think one of the things he said in this uh, in this interview in Spanish was that um, you know he's conscious that uh, the environment within the Suzuki Garage is very positive at the moment um, and he feels that this kind of drawing out process of, of the, you know is he going to stay or is he going to go could have a negative impact on the team um, and the feeling within the garage so one of the th one of the reasons why he wants um, or he's been asked to decide by Le Mans is to, to ensure that they can you know start making plans for 2017 without him um, and you know everyone's everyone's in the clear everyone knows where he's at you know so they're not kind of trying to double guess um, which he which you know could have maybe some effect on, on on future results. Yeah, exactly. Also leaves uh, leaves Suzuki with a big hole to fill um, because I mean, as far as I'm concerned, right now Maverick Vinales is the fifth best motorcycle racer in MotoGP, possibly even better. Fourth. Uh, yeah, yeah, argue, yeah, argue, yeah, absolutely, arguably, and he has a lot of uh, he has a lot of potential. Uh, he has yeah. potential to be much, much better. Uh, he's still got to prove that uh, uh, that potential. I actually had um, a conversation with someone from Honda um, who said, uh, you know, it's all very well this this hype about Maverick Vinales, but he hasn't, um, uh, he still hasn't really delivered, and we don't know whether that's him or the bike. And he got comprehensively beaten by his teammate on uh, at uh, uh, on Sunday as well. Yeah, true, true. Although you know. 2.5 seconds or whatever it is I, I mean I mean it is uh, I don't know if you would call that totally you know he didn't have his, uh, oh, his no, arse handed to him but it's... he was uh, he, you know I think he was he was quite open and admitted that uh, that the better man won that Espargaro had had a, a fantastic race but uh, yeah yeah, yeah, but, yeah yes exactly but, uh, but yeah 
like I say, I mean, uh, so we've got uh, Vinyala's probably going to Yamaha, which makes for a... Actually, I'm really quite looking forward to that. It's, it's absolutely fascinating. Uh, the question is, who does Suzuki get in to replace him? Well, that's the that's the cascade, isn't it, right? So once you start moving around these these factory seats, it's going to really shuffle things up for the series, which sh- should be immensely entertaining for, for fans and for us. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, I mean, the, 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 the big rumour is Iannone to uh, Suzuki, but the, that rumour also came from Iannone's manager so you might say he has a certain amount of stake in he has a dog in that fight yeah and Iannone was only too happy to to let it be known on Thursday that he had offers from elsewhere uh, from beyond Ducati's borders uh, and he was seemed very calm and composed almost as if he had uh, he had practiced that speech <laughs> he had been standing in front of the mirror and doing sure that he could drop it in with the right amount of subtlety and you know um, so yeah so I think Iannone wants well, obviously he wants it he wants Ducati to know that he has an offer from elsewhere and perhaps he wants the that process to be sped up somewhat. Uh, but he said that he's going to take two or three rounds to decide uh, exactly what's best for his future. So, yeah, so Suzuki and Iannone, that's definitely an option. Will you have to bring the winglets with him or will Suzuki provide... <laughs> Well, uh, yeah, well, Suzuki already brought some, I think. Um, Alice Esparger was trying them on the Friday at Jerez, I think, and then he yeah. used them, both he and Vinales used them on the Monday test. So maybe that's what's uh, that's what's tempting them. It's it's <laughs> it's an interesting it's an interesting subplot to, to look into. You guys should get on that for sure. But well, but but in all seriousness, no, it is it is interesting to watch. Uh, Anone does have wings tattooed on his back, by the way. So you know that uh, even looking at his back a lot, Neil. Yeah, sorry to sorry to drop that in. Well, someone actually pointed that out to me because um, uh, actually was it someone pointed that out, Neil? You know what I'm yeah. saying. So uh, uh, there, there is, or at least there was, a, a, a website called MotoGP Hotties, which was um, uh, started, I think, by younger, uh, by a, a, a bunch of young girls, and um, it's just topless pictures of topless, um, uh, topless MotoGP riders. Uh, if you, I, I, I am told that um, uh, the, the, uh, such pictures were also extremely popular on uh, on certain um, uh, uh, gay forums as well because, you know, sporting... These are good-looking young men uh, in at the peak of physical condition, um, mostly well muscular, extremely muscular, so obviously they're going to attract, you know, attention from admirers of the male form. You know, I hope Dorna listens to this episode because this is just a roadmap on how they can tap into a new market. I... Uh, I'm fairly sure yes. this is, it's been brought to their attention before. Yeah, I hope you're you're more rigorous than you normally are with the editing in this week's podcast. <laughs> you know, I feel like I feel like that one's going to get left in for some reason. That's weird. That they call that a producer's prerogative. <laughs> okay, so shall we move on to the race? Oh, there was a race. Oh, okay. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Okay, so that brings uh, our discussion about the silly season and plans for 2017 to a close. We're going to have a quick break, and then after that, we're going to talk about the MotoGP race. Hi, this is David Emmett of the Paddock Pass podcast. Do remember to like us on Facebook and keep an eye on the Facebook page. You can find us at uh, facebook.com slash podcast. (laughs) 
So on to the race then. Um, on Thursday, it was almost uh, easy to lose sight of the fact that we had a race on Sunday. There was so much talk about 2017, about which rider was going where and so on and so forth. Um, but, you know, thankfully, um, well, one of the three races delivered in terms of uh, on-track entertainment. Uh, the MotoGP race was was interesting in another sense, I felt, um, because we, we probably had Valentino Rossi's most dominant performance uh, across a MotoGP weekend, a race weekend, since his, since his return to Yamaha in 2013. So, we're maybe going back to 2010, 2009 when we last saw Rossi in this kind of form, David. Would you agree? Uh, according to Dr. Martin Raines, um, uh, the MotoGP statistician, this is the first race ever that Valentino Rossi has led from flags to from, from lights to flag. So uh, from pole position, yeah, from yeah, and from pole position. So it's, uh, it, I think, not quite sure I'd, I'd call it his most dominant uh, uh, race ever because I think that uh, that would definitely go to Philip Island in 2003 when they gave him a, a 10 second penalty. Uh, was it a 10 or, I can't remember if it was a 10 or a 15? I 10. think it was a 10 second penalty for uh, passing under yellow flags. And he uh, immediately went on to just demonstrate just how big his advantage was over the field by uh, uh, just destroying people, dropping his lap time, lap time by three quarters of a second. Um, but yeah, I mean, it was, it was an astonishing it was an astonishing demonstration by him um and i really think uh, i think this was also this victory there's a bunch of factors but the biggest factor is this is one that uh, he won really with his team together with his team i was out on saturday morning with uh, J- with john laverty eugene's brother who was we were going around and he was pointing out some of the uh, some of the various things that different riders were doing uh, and he immediate one of the things he immediately pointed we stood between turns 3 and 4 and one of the things who immediately pointed out was that um, uh, he could see Rossi working on uh, to you know short shifting and and and, and trying to pre- prevent the rear tire from spinning to try and work on tire preservation and Rossi seemed to do that right from the start all all he was concerned about is how his rear tire would last on the uh, on the weekend and um it, it really really paid off in the race because uh, after the race Jorge Lorenzo was complaining about um uh, about you know his rear tire spinning up but everyone was complaining about rear tire sp- their rear tire spinning up um uh, it's just that Rossi was handling it well and I think as just pure experience he knew with his team this is what we need to do they all work together to find uh, to maximise tyre life maximise grip maximise drive uh, keep uh, keep his tyres as as clean as possible for as long as possible Uh, and he was just he was just unbeatable it was it was a it was a a masterful a masterful performance um in every aspect. I'm quite happy to, to hold my hands up and admit that I thought this type of performance was was just no longer possible for Valentino Rossi in an age where you have Marc Marquez and Jorge Lorenzo both sharing the track with him. Um, I just didn't think uh, that, you know, that Rossi was capable of doing these kind of things, of making them look, you know, second rate to a certain extent. Um, were you surprised, JB? Oh, I mean, I was definitely surprised. I think, um, I think I'm kind of in the camp of those people that, that probably wrote Valentino Rossi off as, as being a serious uh, title contender for, for this season. And, and now I think I have to go back and question all those thoughts because obviously I've been, I've been proven, proven wrong massively. I'll be very curious to see what happens in France. You know, I can, you can attribute, I think this, this race to a couple things and, and call it a red herring if you're still a doubter. But you know, if we see performances like that in the next race or two, uh, you know, 
I think Rossi could be in the championship for another six years because it's just he just keeps coming back. He's like the Lazarus man. Yeah, I think it's quite interesting because Jerez usually, um, if you look back through history, um, it, the, the, the Spanish Grand Prix usually isn't a red herring. It's very rare that you see a race there. Um, it's in dry conditions where someone wins and then they're not going to really be in the reckoning. Um, one of the one of the things that Valentino said at the end of of the race in the post uh, the post race press conference was that usually Jerez is a good sign of where you are in terms of the championship, in terms of where your rivals are. Um, and indeed, I think I looked back through some stats in the last time that someone uh, won the Spanish Grand Prix and didn't finish in the top three in the championship was 20 years ago, 1997. Um, so, f- so from this, can we take, David, that uh, I know we're only four, four races into 2016, but from this, can we take take it as a, as a given that Valentino will be a, a proper cha- championship challenger? Uh, I mean, obviously, he's going to be a championship challenger because he always is. I still think that both Mark, uh, Mark Marquez and Jorge Lorenzo are faster uh, uh, on any given day but uh, it's the same as last year Rossi finds a way to win he uses experience Uh, I don't think he has quite the same outright speed but, um, but we're talking about you know Percentages. We're talking about hundredths of seconds, not 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 sort of you know half a second. And any time, uh, any t- t- Rossi is also really capable of getting it right. That I think is his strength. He he understands uh, it, it's his experience, his experience with the Michelins. I think also the tyres have come to him because the tyres suit him much better than, uh, the, than than the Bridgestone is. He spent uh, what is it from two thousand until two thousand and seven racing on Michelins, um, and these are t- obviously these are totally different Michelins. But the tyre design philosophy doesn't change, and so you sort of understand it. It, it, it feels like a more natural. Uh, way to do it. I think it was at Austin that um, uh, Rossi called the tyres more normal, so you know th- they react a lot better. And both Marquez and Lorenzo have spent the the, the vast majority of their uh, uh, career racing on Bridgestones. So to them, uh, the the Bridgestones are much more normal. Where uh, I think a, a lot of other people would uh, w- would disagree. But yeah, Jerez is a, is a strange track in terms of low track conditions. Um, uh, temperature changed a lot on from from Saturday to Sunday. All those things made made a really really uh, really big difference and uh, Rossi just I mean Rossi understood immediately what the key factor of this race was going to be and he and he beat the others with experience Neil I just wanted to loop back into what you were saying before about Hareth being a predictor for the championship you know and I and I get what you're saying like the, the track itself and the the circuit and those race weekends are, are very predictive but I mean I for me I can't separate the fact that we heard a, a monumentous announcement on Thursday and see the result that we saw on Sunday. Like for me, the red herring is is the the extraneous factors, the psychological factors around this race, and whether or not those play influence to the race result, or if we're seeing something else going on. I actually, I actually think. Uh that you have a point, but you're looking at it from the wrong way because I don't think it actually had an effect on Lorenzo. I think it had an effect on Rossi. Because no, I think it had an effect on Rossi yeah, too. Yeah, well, it had an effect on Rossi because for the first time in three in uh, in the first three races, he wasn't in the pre-event press conference and he didn't have to sit there uh, uh, and grit his teeth and sit between two people he despises um, uh, and sort of start the champion start the weekend off with a with a. Uh, with a feeling of anger and, and 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 just in a foul mood, he started off. He 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 was cheerful. This was the first weekend all year that I've seen him that he was he was just cheerful, and I think a cheerful Rossi is a very very dangerous Rossi indeed. Certainly, I I, I look at the the season so far in MotoGP. Like, 
as as like tectonic plates. Like I grew up I grew up on the west coast of, of America, so I'm I'm used to earthquakes and, and tectonic pressure. And I just see this Lorenzo and Rossi and Yamaha and Ducati and all this is just this huge tectonic pressure that's slowly grinding away at itself and and lorenzo moving to ducati is 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 like an earthquake that's releasing some of that pressure and some of that energy and i think we're seeing the results of that you know we're seeing this release for for valentino i'll be curious to see how it affects the rest of the paddock and in and, and le mans or or maybe maybe in france and in the subsequent races it proves me wrong but it, it feels like there's there's something that's finally opened up the floodgates and we're seeing some performance come through that may well be possible yeah um it's interesting to speak of lorenzo because he was he was my previous favorite um just because of of, uh, of what he was able to do on um, on saturday afternoon in fp4 before qualifying he was so fast out of the pit lane and on his first lap as per usual you know it's what it's kind of become the norm of the last year or so um and he was around more or less a second faster than than everyone else in his first lap and i thought that he was going to be able to put that into good use to in his race and maybe build up an advantage and, and hold it from there but really we didn't we saw quite an uncharacteristic lorenzo he was he was kind of outfought at the uh, at the start um he dropped back he was able to kind of defend against Mark and then when he tried to uh, when he tried to push on towards the end of the race he wasn't able to, to close that gap at all in Valentino um, you know what, what what do you think was the, the reason behind Lorenzo um, and his weekend David well I mean Lorenzo clearly said that uh, uh, he, he thought there was something wrong with his tyre and the rear was spinning up he was saying you know he could only give it 80% 80 throttle down the um, uh, down the back straight which is probably completely true but I suspect that uh, Valentino Rossi also could only give it 80 percent throttle um, uh, down the back straight because of the amount of wheel spin he had but um, the difference between Rossi and Lorenzo was that Rossi was expecting it because he'd been working on uh, on tyre wear all weekend um, and uh, Lorenzo wasn't expecting it the tyres were behaving a little bit differently because of the uh, uh, because of the track conditions uh, but go going back to Rossi being being fast uh, someone was pointing out to me on Twitter uh, to someone who I, uh, I seem to recall was you know um, they were obviously a Rossi fan but they were pointing out like okay Rossi's fast you know he was fast from the from the very first laps as soon as he got on track uh, he wasn't Lorenzo fast but he was much faster than normal he wasn't building up to uh, uh, building up to uh, some kind of a pace and I think that is uh, I, I think that uh, Looking back, the, the the person who I, I forget who it was on Twitter, but um, uh, extremely grateful because they pointed out and it, they made a very very good point um, that Rossi is working. Or there's all these little details, and he keeps on work chipping away at them one one bit at a time. And I think that's what uh, uh, I think that's what made the difference in the end. Lorenzo, I think, also went into the into the race expecting to win. He expected he'd seen his pace. Um, yeah, sure. Uh, Rossi had had pulled out a brilliant lap to. To, to take uh, pole but also Lorenzo's uh, qualifying uh, he'd planned a three run strategy but then his the second tyre he had a vibration uh, in the rear with the second tyre so he had to abort that and then come back in for that and he felt he could have had pole as well so I think you know, all these little sort of uh, all these little setbacks sort of upset him a little bit and of course you can't discount the fact that this whole announcement must have been a distraction for Lorenzo yeah it must have been playing on his mind to some extent um, someone also pointed out uh, on Twitter um, when you go onto the MotoGP website and you look at the chronological analysis from the race um, each each lap there are four sectors and at the end of it you have the, the top speed recorded uh, through the speed trap on that and you can look down through the whole thing and obviously with, with Lorenzo's comments saying that he had to roll the throttle um, on the final lap or 
sorry, in the final uh, third of the race, um, you could see that his top speed was uh, was no no less than Valentino's. Um, wasn't wasn't um, it wasn't there wasn't a clear speed disadvantage there. So I think from that we can we can possibly assume that you know Valentino's problems were the equal of of what Lorenzo was suffering. Yeah, exactly. And I think I think the, the difference between Rossi and Lorenzo is that Rossi was prepared for this because he spent um, uh, like I said he spent all week working on wheel spin and how he's going to handle it and all the rest of it. I think I think my only my only reaction to that would be um, Lorenzo should grab a psychology one on one book and look up the word or the phrase cognitive dissonance because <laughs> you know because his arguments like you know i understand like we never want we never want to attribute our failures to ourselves we always try and attribute failures to externalities now well to be fair when uh, when lorenzo has um uh, when lorenzo has messed up he's been perfectly happy to uh, to to put his hands up he's had, he's he said there's been a couple of uh of races where he was just bad and he just said that was me. I just wasn't fast enough. No, um, yeah, and, but, and, and um, I'm not. I'm not slagging him off for it. I'm sure he he got back to the garage and Wilco, Wilco sat him down and, and showed him exactly what we were just talking about with the chronological. But the other thing is those those top speed figures are deceptive. You can't take them very seriously because usually, uh, what you call it, the 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 speed detector, the 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 loop, the timing loop, which which is underneath it. Um, for a start, I think it's. I think it's, uh, I believe it's uh, like something like 10, uh, 10 meters or something. And it's quite often placed, um, very, very close to the to the braking zone, or it's usually placed for cars. So it's capturing the top speed of a cars, but uh, bikes brake a lot earlier than cars do. And so they're quite often, so for example, Mugello, if you look at the top speed, uh, the official top speed at Mugello is something like 330, I think, or 340. And uh, yet Pedrosa has been clocked at 365 when you actually look at the, da- uh, uh, look at the data. So the, these timing loops are, uh, they're just walking up to, you know, you're just going up to the, uh, uh, the into the braking zone. You're missing out. There, there are so many factors actually clouding those top speed figures that you can't take them just as gospel. It's not the point at which uh, the rider has uh, is absolutely full throttle, and it's not the peak speed they actually reach during the during the lineup. True, true. Although listening to certain riders in the at the end of that race, they were they weren't just saying there was spin at top speed, they were saying it was spin in three third gear, fourth gear, fifth gear, sixth yeah. gear, all the way up, you know, through the back straight. So I guess it's essentially just as you were you alluded to earlier, how you managed uh, how you managed that throttle up through the gears. Yeah, exactly. And also whether you were expecting it or not, because Bradley Smith said that he felt uh, that there was something wrong with the compound they selected for the middle of that tire, that it was just uh, it was spinning up it was just spinning up too much. Yeah. Yeah. Does does this tire spinning issue play in your guys' minds as, as another issue now with, with Michelin in, in this season, or is it just that's racing sometimes? And, and and we shouldn't read too much into it as far as where the tires are in development and where the tires are in the series. Um, well, I think it's quite interesting. Um, I think Michelin, we, we saw that only two people retire or not finish um, Sunday's race. Um, one of those was Davizioso, who retired because of a, a machine failure. Um, and compare that to, to, to Austin and to Argentina, where we saw a lot of people crashing out, um, you know, crashing out in the front end. Um, I think we saw in Jerez that, um, you know, Michelin were... You know, still making some steps with the front tire. Um, people were getting more used to it and getting into you know better rhythm of, of knowing what to expect in a race. Um, but yeah, the rear tire did seem to be an issue. Um, 
what had happened to Scott Redding in Argentina, uh, the results of those uh, of that tire. Um, basically, it was analysed in Clement Ferrand uh, on Thursday at Jerez. Mitchell and were were happy to speak to the, the press and tell them, you know, what what they had found, which was that. Um, you know, there was indeed, it was basically the tyre coupled with the heat and the track layout in Argentina that caused Redding's crash, uh, or sorry, Redding's incident, and basically vindicated their decision to bring harder a harder structure to Texas, which they're not going to be using for the next several races. Um, so it's certainly thrown up... Uh, an issue for a lot of a lot of riders. The Ducatis were really, were, were in particular, were struggling. Ian O'Neill, Redding had just an awful weekend. Uh, Bradley Smith was another one. Cal Crutchlow was another guy that you know they're really struggling to get um, to get the best out of this uh, harder, stiffer compound rear tire. Yeah, I think I think we can't blame Michelin for um, you know for for reacting to this. Um, safety is the paramount. Um, but at the same time, you can understand certain riders' frustrations in that Michelin has changed this basically because of uh, of, of one. You know, one certain rider with a certain style on a certain motorcycle, um, and th- those problems weren't affecting the majority of the field. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, Bradley Smith put it quite well again. He said uh, basically, this is a prototype tire. It had done what was it? What he said? I can't remember. Something like five laps or something. Uh, the the safety tire. They'd had five laps on the safety tire before. Uh, 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 all of a sudden, everyone is switching over and using the same construction. Um, so to, to actually do that kind of development is um, is very very difficult. It's very difficult. They basically the the, the teams know uh, almost nothing about these two uh, about these tires because they've missed it for the first two races. Um, uh, or well, sorry, they've only had you know for the first two races they they had no time on this tire now. Uh, they've been they've spent the last two races trying to figure out how the how to get the best out of the uh, out of the tire, and, that, and that's quite difficult. I actually got a um, uh, I got an email from a reader slagging me off for uh, saying that I thought the mission had done an astounding job, and they have done an astounding job. It's just that um, actually making tires which are this good, it's just that they are not um, uh, they're not perfect. If you go back and look at Bridgestone, Bridgestone had some uh, fairly atrocious uh, uh, tires uh, during certain periods. It's just the way. That that's just the way that uh, tyre development works. But um, yeah, there's going to be a lot of riders who are annoyed that they have to keep on using this tyre. But I think every single race, it's going to get better and better. And also, I think Michelin are going to sort of just adapt, like, for example, the the, the compound in the middle, either make it a little bit softer or a little bit harder to, to so it actually works better. Looking at... Looking at- Beyond the, the, the front two, um, the two Yamahas, we saw Mark Marquez in third. Um, at one point, it looked as though he was going to be able to challenge Jorge Lorenzo for second, and uh, maybe even for maybe even better than that. Uh, but in the end, he, he he was third. Afterwards, he said that Nakamoto had told him before the race that finishing collecting points was absolutely paramount. Um, that he shouldn't have done anything silly. Uh, was this a display that suggested that uh, the kind of the, the the win it or bin it Mark Marquez from 2015 from the first half of 2015 is uh, is gone? Yeah, absolutely. He said that himself. Uh, I think because he had, I think, five or six race crashes last year. Um, and if you give him, you know, sort of, you know, third, fourth, fifth position for all of those, uh, uh, all of those race crashes, the championship championship looks very, very different. And I think he understood uh, that that was the big lesson that uh, that he took from 2016. This is something he said himself uh, uh, in the press conference afterwards. The big lesson for him was, you know, not getting on the podium and he found it very difficult to accept uh, that he wouldn't be able to win uh, but he was perfectly happy to accept all right this is this is third uh, the championship is 
still there's still a lot of racing left uh, left in the championship. Uh, there'll be other chances to uh, there'll be other chances to win. I, I think the because again he had exactly the same problems as he had last year which is that the the rear is spinning up and uh he's having to ask too much of the front tire to actually be competitive but whereas last year what he would do is push the front tire too much and and uh, end up crashing out this year he is backing off letting the tire cool off and then just taking taking third yeah i think um if if marquez can come out of uh let's say catalonia um, in the middle of June and still be within five or ten points of the championship leader or indeed even winning or uh, leading the championship I think that will be very uh, ominous let's say for the for, for the two Yamahas for Rossi and for Lorenzo um, because if indeed if Marquez can show that he he, um, he can finish consistently um, when not in the victory hunt um, he'll then be going to tracks like the Saxon Ring um, where you know he has a, ter- a terrific record in the past and we always know that he is you know very strong in the second half too yeah yeah absolutely uh, I think the more heartening thing for um, uh, for Honda was the fact that Danny Pedrosa came home in fourth, uh, just three seconds behind um, uh, behind Marquez. Previously, Pedrosa has been absolutely nowhere, and it does seem that it does seem that even despite the upgrades on the uh, on the 2016 RC213V, it does seem that the bike is still a bit of a dog. Really, it's still spinning up the rear tire. It's still really physical, really difficult to ride. Uh, if you look at uh, if you look at how badly. Tito Rabat is doing that's you know he's a former Moto2 champion he shouldn't be he shouldn't be struggling this badly um, even uh, I mean Jack Miller's hurt uh, so he's having difficulty riding but even then you know he's a uh, he's his, his results are not much better than they were on the on the open class Honda, despite this this supposedly being a better, a better bike. Yeah, and I mean, Cal Crutchlow did show very good speed in Qatar and indeed in Argentina. Uh, he possibly could have finished had two top five finishes in, in both of those races. Um, but I think it's safe to assume that you know Cal Crutchlow isn't an eleventh eleventh you know, place rider in in MotoGP, especially no. if you look back at Jerez in two thousand and fifteen and he finished in the top five. I think. Um, yeah, it's it's clearly it's clearly a bike that. Uh, that it still has some serious issues. Yeah, yes, absolutely, absolutely. Again, it was what was actually almost entertaining is the uh, um, uh, we ended up almost with um, pairs of bikes because we had two Yamahas at the front and then two higher Repsol Hondas and then two Suzukis. Yeah, and possibly two Ducatis if uh, if Davizioso's uh, um, water hose hadn't broken yeah. um, early on in the race. Yeah. My OCD was very pleased. Was very <laughs> pleased. <laughs> But you know, for, for for me from the cheap seats though, it, it seems like in a way like the the Honda RC twenty one three V brings out the worst in, in in the Honda riders. Like we look at we look at Tito and he's kind of he's kind of a head case sometimes. And like you know, you look at where he was in Hareth and he was just kind of out in the stratosphere in his own little realm, you know, way back at the grid. And then you look at Cal who who is always going to push very 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 hard and and. You know, when he does that, he often finds the the end of the limits, or or, or as Casey Stoner would say, his his talent outweighs his uh, his ambition outweighs his talent. Yeah, thank you, David. Um, but you know, you're starting to see like it, it's bringing up these these worst traits, and and for Danny, he just kind of gets stuck, you know, out of the podium in this kind of uh, no man's land of 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 
of championship points and it just I don't know I, I feel like it's it exacerbates the the issue sometimes yeah I think for Danny the, the Danny is the biggest Danny Pedrosa uh, is the rider who has suffered most from this change of tires to this uh, to this stiffer rear construction because he was really fast on uh, on the tires they were testing uh, earlier in the year uh, because he could actually generate grip but now with a stiffer construction he just can't generate any rear grip so all the thing is doing is spinning he's getting he's generating generating no forward motion uh, uh, they actually made some improvements uh, so things are a lot better uh, but because he is so light he, that he just can't he can't generate traction there is just no way he can actually generate traction and that's a, that, that's a massive massive problem for him yeah and that was that wasn't just limited to Pedroza we spoke to Cal Crutzo I think on Saturday who was saying that the amount of rear brake that he's having to use going into corners uh, to, 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 to generate that rear traction to load the rear tyre because it is that bit harder uh, is quite incredible uh, compared to what he was using earlier uh, earlier in the year or even last year. I spoke to someone who will rename, na- remain uh, nameless from a Honda team and he he used one word to describe his bike. Shit. <laughs> Livio Supo told you that? <laughs> <laughs> he did and then he threw me in a river with some concrete overshoes. Uh, uh, no, seriously. I mean, it was uh, it, it was someone from, uh, from another team but it was, uh, you know, they were most most uncomplimentary about uh, uh, about the bike and um, um, you, you can just see it. it's just it's just the same it's just the same problem I mean the, it's incredibly the, the, the strength of the Honda is in braking it's it's probably the best by uh, braking bike on the grid but the uh, front Michelin which is a little bit weaker uh, is, is, is taking that advantage away although perhaps the, the, the new tyres they, tra- they tested on Monday may bring that back a little bit there were some improvements from the, from the various prototypes they tested um, with the uh, extraordinarily confusing numbering system which Michelin likes to use um, uh, it's just so yeah perhaps that will come back to it a little bit but we'll see we'll certainly see it uh, at Le Mans because Le Mans was the was a total disaster for uh, for Honda last year with all of the bikes just you know crashing out except for Marquez who you know worked miracles basically to avoid crashing on himself yeah exactly um, so and, yeah. and came well uh, yeah, and finished well well you know miles off the front of the race okay great we're going to go to a quick break and after that some more MotoGP action Hi, this is Neil, and this is just a quick reminder to follow us on Twitter, that's at paddockpasspod, for all the latest information about the show and what's going on inside the paddock. Okay, so welcome back. Uh, so we have a few more things to discuss from the MotoGP race. Um, the first of which I think it's worth mentioning, uh, Eugene Laverty's performance. Uh, Eugene finished the race uh, ninth place. Uh, it was his second top ten of the year. Uh, the first of those came in in Argentina, and that I think we can all agree was a bit of a freak, freakish race uh, with the enforced pit stop. It was shortened uh, from twenty five laps to twenty, and there were lots of crashes. This one though wasn't like that at all. Um, Eugene afterwards said that he really felt that he'd earned it. Um, David, is this just uh, you know 
is he really impressing you at the moment? He's doing something quite special with this bike, right? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, he's clearly, uh, I think the, uh, 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 at the moment, he's the best of the, he's the best of the other Ducatis, uh, of the non-factory Ducatis, uh, because he is, and again, I think the reason for that is just experience, you know, I mean, it's, you cannot overstate how much experience uh, Eugene has. Uh, he's, obviously, he's raced 125s and 250s, he's raced World Supersport, he's raced World Superbike, um, he's had a he's had a lot of uh, a lot of time on bikes. He looked pretty bad last year, but that was because he was on the open Honda, and the open Honda was quite clearly a piece of crap. This bike is a lot better, and well, you see also again. Hector Barbara has been just outstanding during qualifying. Uh, I actually had an interesting conversation with him about that, and he said uh, he described Hector Barbara's style, uh, style as old school 250, um, carrying lots and lots of corner speed. But that allowed him to go very, very fast for one lap, but not for, uh, but not over race distance. And I remember um, not last year, but the year before, where, uh, what. Um, Andrea Dovizioso was saying about the GP14 was that basically uh, the bike was great as long as you had lots and lots of grip on the edge because you could carry lots and lots of corner speed and use the rear to turn but as soon as the grip on the edge disappeared uh, then you had to change your style to actually adapt to it and to, to go around which meant that um, you know you'd have a good start to the race but but lose out further down uh, further on the race and that's exactly what you see Barbara doing he, he sort of he gets a good start and then and then drops back but and Eugene seems to be the opposite where he can't he doesn't have the you know the, the single flat out uh, uh, pace, but he can actually uh, the, his his consistency is much much better, and he, that really pays off in the second half of the race where he's uh, just making progress. Uh, you know he was he was catching the people in front of him and and not losing uh, and not losing anything to the people behind him. So yeah, absolutely solid ninth place. Yeah, and it wasn't just at the at the end of the race or, or you know from midpoint onwards that he was that he was impressive. I think his uh, his fastest lap of the race was the ninth best overall, um, and was something like just a second slower than Valentino Rossi's, um, and you know minorly slower than uh, than Andrea Iononi um, on his factory Ducati. So it really was, um, you know, a, a fine ride overall. Um, something that I think if you've seen or spoken to Eugene at, uh, you know, at the, the Phillip Island test before the before the start of the year, or indeed the, the Qatar test um, that preceded the first race, you know, this kind of run at the start of 12th, 4th, 12th, uh, 9th, um, you know, we wouldn't wouldn't have really expected it, to be honest. No, exactly. No, you're, you're, you're <coughs> expecting him to be struggling to get into the top 15. Uh I think it's also very, very good for the Aspar team because I spoke to uh, where uh, Gino Borsoi at, at last year when they were talking about you know dropping Honda and going to Ducati, and he said one of the things, one of the reasons they had to do it was you know for their sponsors they had to get regular top tens, um, and you know Eugene is absolutely doing that. Um, you know, he's he's, he's uh, not that I think he's on a particularly fat paycheck from uh, from Aspar, but uh, whatever they're paying him is clearly not enough. He's uh, definitely earning it. Uh, just just to play a little bit of of journalistic devil's advocate, uh, you know, I pulled up the MotoGP standings point standings right now, and and Hector is ahead of Eugene. Yeah, you know, and I and I love Eugene as much as as you guys, but what what causes you to rate Eugene over Hector Barbera right now? 
is it the momentum? Is it what you're seeing on the track? Because, you know, if we're looking at pure standings right now, it's, it's Hector Barber that's having the standout Ducati performance. Oh, no, nothing to take away from what Barbara's doing. I mean, he's he's clearly having a really, really strong uh, a strong start of the season. But I think down the stretch, things are going to come to, uh, things are going to come to Eugene uh, a little bit, uh, uh, a little bit more. And again, you know, Barbara has been top 10 every race so far, which is really very impressive. Very impressive also, but you have to keep in mind that Barbara was on that bike last year. The event, the, the event is called was using GP14 point twos in 2015 as well this is a new bike for Eugene a uh, new bike for the Aspar team a new bike for Phil Marin his crew chief to you know to understand get his head around um, so you know I'm not saying that, Har- that Barbara hasn't had a, a very impressive start to the year but I think you know considering that it's a new bike and you know almost like a clean slate for, for Laverty with such a limited amount of testing during uh, during the winter because of injuries and crashes and different things you know I think that's why I've, I've been more impressed with him at the start of this year yeah exactly also he's got a new mechanic you know they've got a young very experienced mechanic in there uh, which may be one of the reasons why they had a, a, a few issues with uh, with you know reliability at the start of the year um, the that mechanic is now starting to come good so I think basically I think Barbara is is uh, where he is has reached the level he's going to be for the rest of the season which is you know very strong, very impressive, but I think there's a little bit more upside for uh, for Laverty. I think there is definitely some real progress to be made for Laverty. So, um, but clearly, you know, that it is interesting that uh, that that they are having such a such an incredibly uh, such an incredibly strong season, and they are basically the uh, the two best UKs. You know, they're, they're one and two in the championships, there, or one and two. Uh, they're the first and second uh, Ducatis in, in the championship. Now, a lot of that is down to Andrea Davicio. So it's just atrocious run of luck. Um, but yeah, still very impressive. In your guys' talkings in, in the paddock, have you seen uh, Eugene Laverty's results this season or his performance this season translating into any sort of traction for his career moving forward? Is this going to be an opportunity like... Is this a breakout season for him or is this another one of those seasons where we'll see him making uh, the best of kind of a crummy situation but still being kind of left behind in terms of seats and other teams that are they're of higher stature, I guess is the way I want to say it. I think it's too early to say, but I think he's definitely, uh, the, the impression I get from talking to people is he's definitely catching people's attention. You know, he's definitely, obviously the first person you have to beat is, uh, beat is your teammate, he's doing that. Uh, the next person you, you have to beat is everyone on the same bike. He's not quite doing that, but he's coming close to doing it. Um, uh, it he is, uh, you know, people are, starting to pencil his name in to their list of uh, of possible candidates so uh, like last year um, he had to fight just to hold on to his cha- uh, to hold on to his seat I think next yeah, year just is- to remind his team yeah just to remind his team that he had a two year contract yeah uh, exactly the, the, team, the team seemed to forget that midway through the year yeah exactly and now this year it's more uh, it's more a question of uh, you know he's, he's t- if his team wants to keep him they will really have to do the, they'll, they'll really have to do their best there are definitely going to be there's definitely going to be more opportunities and that's the way it's supposed to work as well that was, that was his plan his plan was to go in on a two-year deal um uh, learn the bikes for a year and then try and impress in his second year and um so far it's uh, so far it's going to plan i mean the only downside is that is the, his his age because he is also i think 28 29 uh, i can't remember if he's yeah 29, 29 I think. I think. yeah yeah, yeah, absolutely, um, and that, that you—it's interesting, David, that you said that Eugene is the the top Ducati. Um, 
obviously we have to put that down to Andre Davizio's rotten run of luck, three straight DNFs. Also, Andre Inone's um, slightly tempestuous start to the year. Um, but again, we saw Ducati not really close to the front ever through the weekend. Um, Davizio's a qualified a, a good fourth, but I don't think we were going to see him finish anywhere higher than fifth, perhaps in the race. Um, it was a difficult weekend for, for Ducati as a whole. Yeah, I mean, Ducati seemed to, it's ironic really that the these new Michelin, this new Michelin rear has been bought because of something that happened to a Ducati rider and yet the Ducatis just really can't get on with this tyre at all um, they're the, they are the bike which is re- I mean the Ducati is really really good at, at generating grit which again is one of the reasons it was uh, uh, the, the also especially the 14.2 was so strong around um, was so strong around the, the Jerez which has such a slippery surface but the, uh, it, it's therefore strange that when they actually change the tyre make it a little bit stiffer take some of that grip away that the the, the, the Ducati seem to have suffered so badly from it um, uh, I think we would be seeing very different uh, different results if we had the original um, uh, rear tyre allocation but uh, unfortunately it doesn't look like that tyre is going to is going to come back no and um, one person that we saw just in a, in a muddle um, was Scott Redding throughout the weekend yeah. totally lost and unable to even understand where the problem was coming from well I think he knew where the problem was coming from but understand where to, to, to start er- er- eradicating and affecting the, the problem he was totally lost yeah absolutely and uh, uh, again he's part of his problem is his style is to spin the tire is to spin the rear up a little bit to use the rear um, uh, but this just spins too freely and he can't uh, create. I mean, the the thing about creating drive while spinning uh, is you want to sort of minimise the amount of. Uh, you want to get it. You want to. You're looking for that balance point where you've got a little bit of uh, a little bit of spin, but the spin is helping to create drive forward. And it looks like it all um, all Scott Redding is doing is just smoking the rear and, and 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 not going and not not getting any forward motion whatsoever uh it, i mean he's you know where he finished was just terrible and also even after the test he was you know he left without speaking to us just because there was nothing to say um well there was nothing to say which wasn't an expletive <laughs> exactly yeah and it was also something that we saw with ian only ian only managed to salvage uh seventh eighth place in the end I think it was or maybe seventh um, he was explaining to us on Sunday that because of his style as soon as he gets off the brake the front brake that is uh, he likes to use the, the throttle even if it is very gently to to, to to get the bike to turn and he's saying in that first bit of uh, that first touch of the throttle there isn't anywhere near um, the level of grip that he had experienced with the, the previous rear tyre that Michelin had brought um, before uh, Texas I guess um, and that's really you know that's really hurt him and affected him so he said he was spent the weekend trying to affect this or change the setup uh, to, to adjust to that and also to try and change his style in some ways to to adjust to the, the, the new grip that was available to him um, so It'll be interesting. I mean, Jerez has never been a good, a strong track for Ducati, even when Casey Stoner was uh, was was racing with him. I think he only podi- he had a podium on one occasion. Um, and did you think you have to go back to 2010 to to find a race which a Ducati rider finished within 10 seconds of the race winner? Um, so yeah, so we can't you know we can't say that the, the Ducati is a, a heap of junk and that these Michelin rear tires are you know effectively ruling out their chances of being competitive. But um, we'll 
we'll see. We'll see going towards Le Mans. Yeah, I mean, it, it is a bit of a mystery why the, the Ducatis have historically been bad there, but they just have. They, it's just been because the other thing is it's also one of their test tracks, so they, they, they test at Jerez a lot as well. So they've got, I mean, they have got sort of cubic terabytes of uh, of data on the track. It's just that they, for some reason, their bike doesn't work around there. Now, David, I know you're a bigger nerd than to use a metric like cubic terabytes. <laughs> Nothing, nothing wrong. Nothing wrong with uh, with cubic. There's nothing. There's nothing imperial about cubic terabytes. I can assure you. Well, one of the things that's the, the you know just to bring up your point about it being a test track. I mean, obviously, I've heard a lot about how Hareth is a good representative track to the European tracks. It's a good analog to to use. Yeah, but. but but the surface is really, really old. Yeah, the surface is nine years old. Uh, uh, every year they keep on asking for the uh, for the track to be uh, resurfaced. Uh, again, when the safety commission met again this year, uh, this this weekend, they asked for the surface to be resurfaced, uh, the, the the track to be resurfaced again. Um, but the the style of the track, uh, quite tight, um, uh, quite narrow. Um, uh, also the you know the, the sort of the temperature this is the kind of this is the the these are the kind of conditions under which every under which most european races happen uh so you'll have you know a hot track in the afternoon um a, a cold track in the morning and the, the the track is fairly tight and all the rest of it so it's it's it is that i think is why it's uh, re- representative because it is it's just the, the 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 layout and the feel of it is very um uh, is is very uncommon if you go to somewhere like um uh, like austin or argentina or qatar the, the the track is you know something like eight nine meters wide or something which is just absolutely massive whereas um uh Jerez is six or seven which is you know it, it, it's a good deal narrow it means you don't have as much room to um you actually have to focus on your lines a lot more and get them a lot tight there's not as much room for overtaking there's not as much room for for altering your lines well and it also means when it's more narrow that you don't have a sweeping of a line yeah. to, when you come through the apex which yeah. i think could be an interesting point for for why ducati doesn't excel there as uh, as much as, as the other brands yeah possibly Okay, great. So that is everything about MotoGP. We're going to take a quick break and we'll be back with some Moto2 and Moto3 action. Hey guys, Jensen here from the Two Enthusiasts podcast. And uh, last episode, I threw down the challenge to the Paddock Pass podcast listeners to get on iTunes and and rate the show and and give some comments and feedback. So I just want to give a quick shout out to a few listeners who did so. Inibara, GhostX41, KM155, and Saray007. Thank you for heeding the call and helping out your fellow listeners. I hope the rest of you will follow suit and and give the show a a like and a rating on iTunes. The whole crew from the Paddock Pass podcast would greatly appreciate it. So welcome back. We have discussed uh, the merits of the different riders and runners in MotoGP. We're now going to move on to the the support classes, uh, to Moto2 and to Moto3. 
David, did anything stand out at all to you in the Moto2 race? Uh, apart from the outstanding job which Sam Lowe's did, uh, well, uh, do you know what? It was it was actually Moto2, the, the, the good thing about this year is that Moto, the Moto2 races are getting more competitive and they're becoming more interesting. It was fairly clear that Sam Lowe's had the whole race under control, uh, but he didn't just walk away with it. Uh, Jonas Folger had, an, uh, had a really strong race. Alex Rins um, uh, had a really, really tough weekend and still came through to, to to take a comfortable third. So really, I mean, it was just... I think what we are seeing now is the, uh, the, the the making of the championship, the forming of the group which are going to lead the championship. Johan Zarco sort of came through and had a... You know, he salvaged a terrible weekend, but he's the, there's, clearly there is something going on with uh, Johan Zarco, though I have, at the moment I don't really have an idea what it might be. Um, one of the things that, that struck me through the weekend was that... Um, um, really, maybe I, it was the same in Austin last year, but from from Friday, it was almost like an expectancy that Sam Lowe's was going to win this race. Yeah. Um, qualifying didn't do anything to, to dissuade us from that view. Um, and then the race, it was just as textbook a race as, as you could hope to imagine. Um, you know, we all know that Sam's fast and, and Sam's good, but really what we're seeing now is, is you know, a potential world champion. Yeah, oh, absolutely. And like I say, the way that he managed it, and I think this is the difference between the speed up and the um, the, the speed up and the Calyx. The Calyx is that a little bit easier to manage when uh, when conditions change. The, the the speed up is fast, but it's a knife edge bike. It's either, uh, it, it either works or it doesn't. And when it doesn't, you end up um, uh, picking the gravel out of your helmet, which is what, uh, which is you know basically what Sam did a lot last year I thought you know Sam at, um, after the qualifying press conference someone asked him about the the forecast for Sunday and how it was predicted that the temperatures were going to be some 10 degrees hotter than, than Saturday and Sam just completely batted the question away and said well you know I'm on a Calyx now yeah. that's, that's no longer an issue you know and that uh, from a confidence point of view that must be a huge step um, thinking you know that you're not relying on, on you know the temperature going up uh, five or six degrees you know worrying about that on a Saturday evening knowing that you know okay whether it's cooler hotter really sunny cloudy overcast you know it doesn't really matter what uh, what what this does because you know I'm used to a bike that as you say was a knife edge to set up yeah, exactly. And also, I think, uh, like Lowe's himself, has, uh, he's improved himself as well. Uh, last year, he spoke a lot about improving, it, working on fitness and working on being prepared for all of the race, uh, you know, going through all of the race and being, you know, being just as strong in the uh, in the second half as he was in the first half. And, you know, he just didn't put a foot wrong. He just, he didn't put a foot wrong all weekend, really. Um, similarly with Folger, I mean, I know that um, uh, Folger has been working to be a little bit more consistent and again, he could have tried to win it. Um, I think he said in the press conference he could have, you know, tried to get in front of Sam Lowe's, but it would have taken enormous risk, and there was no guarantees of it working. So he just let Sam go and took second place. So yeah, I mean, it was a, it was quite honestly, it was a very very strong performance by all three um, by all three riders. But uh, it was Sam Lowe's won just because he'd done the better job from Friday. Yeah, yeah, and arguably through preseason as well because he yeah. had shown such a such a fine pace through uh, through Hareth, I think in November last year and then at the start of this year too. 
Yeah, I mean, one of the things that uh, one of the things I found quite interesting was the fact that um, uh, uh, the MotoGP race was something like thirty seconds slower than last year. The Moto Three race was ten seconds slower than last year, but the Moto Two race was two or three seconds faster than last year. So, I mean, this I mean, this really, really was a tough race for the Moto Two riders. It was, um, uh, you know, they they were really pushing, uh, having to push to actually get there. Absolutely. And then going on to the to the, the first race of the day, and then did uh well i think without doubt uh, the most exciting we saw a staggering first win for brad binder um which we have to say based on his season's form had been coming but perhaps whenever it was announced that he was going to start from the back of the grid this was uh, slightly unexpected uh, yeah absolutely i mean it was uh, it was both unexpected and almost really quite um almost pathetic if you like uh, it, it was a, a stupid human error he was punished for having an illegal mapping um, uh, on his bike after qualifying now what that means is uh, when the teams put together a software map for their for, for the spec ECU they have to hand it over to Del Auto to uh, you know to check that they that they are you know, to check that they're not overrunning the the, the rev limit uh, and a whole bunch of other things. That, you know, to check they're not doing anything illegally in the map. Um, the software guy at KTM um, had put together a, a map. He just made some minor alterations on the map that they'd used at uh, that they'd used at Austin to, uh, I think. To, what was it? I spoke to to someone from KTM about it, and it was just it, it was minor changes, something a, a little bit to help in in wet conditions, which it wasn't. As one or two things were managing the transition around um, around the rave limit, changed the map, saved it to a USB stick, and then took the uh, the the wrong USB stick to Del Auto to have it homologated. And so when Brad Binder came into the pits on at the uh, or came into Park Ferme after qualifying in um, in for Moto Three on Saturday. Saturday, when his bike was checked, they found that the uh, map file had the wrong name and was therefore technically illegal. And he was punished and sent to the uh, sent to the back of the grid. Uh, KTM appealed, but were, had their rejected had their appeal rejected because you know it was a technical in, it was a technical infringement. They'd clearly broken the rules, and so they had to they, they had to start. But it didn't. Um, if anything, it just seemed to speed him up rather than slow him down. Bear in mind, yeah, absolutely. I think it was. Um uh, it was a race in which Binder overtook the, the previous record of the most overtakes in a single race. Um, I think that was that belonged to Mar- Marquez in 2012 in Moto2 when he started from the back of the grid at Valencia. In that race, he climbed 33 positions. Uh, this race, Binder started from 35th, but because Antonelli went out at the start, I think he climbed 34 positions. So that's a new record in itself, which is quite staggering. Yeah, and, and not just that. I mean, uh, uh, the difference. The, the, there was another difference at um, uh, uh, with Mark Marquez in that um, uh, this was it, it perfect perfect racing conditions. Whereas uh, uh, Marquez's Valencia win was uh, uh, it, it, it was very sketchy. I think it it had been wet. There there was a dry line form. And uh, Marquez was basically just using bravery to um, do a whole bunch of people up the uh, uh, sort of on the wet line, which was uh, 
again, very impressive. It was it was more like Marcus's race at Mategi a couple of races before the Valencia race, where he stalled his bike on the grid, got off the uh, got off the line, I think almost dead last, and was up to about ninth by the end of the uh, by the end of the first lap. Um, all of which he was just doing people on the brakes. Um, but uh, I, I still think, to, to me, this is more impressive because of the it, it, just the way he did it. It's the it was it was such a controlled performance it really it really was and you thought you could see him coming at a certain point but yeah and you thought you know maybe he could catch the front group but he didn't just catch them he left them behind i think there was a time in um in danny kent's run to the world championship in 2015 um there was one moment where you really thought okay this is a, a world champion in the making and that was at le mans where he qualified in 31st or 32nd somewhere way down the grid um because it started raining you know, early in the in the, the Moto three qualifying session and he hadn't set a, a time until then. And we had thought from there, but he made it all the way up to fourth and in that ride you kind of thought like, okay, yeah, that's the maturity. Also the speed that, that you need to, to, to win a world championship. And I think Binder, you know, kind of that was perhaps one of his moments where he really nailed his colours to the mast. Yeah, exactly. I think also um um because I asked him afterwards, you know, does it actually take pressure off of you starting from the back of the grid? And he says, no, uh, no, not at all. I disagree. I think it does because basically when you're starting from the back of the grid, you can't really lose. You know, you can't really, um, you can't really make a mistake. If you, if you crash out, then you get the plaudits for actually having, at least having pushed and tried. Um, if you make it to up to sort of fourth or fifth, then you get the plaudits for, you know, coming through the field. Uh, it takes, it takes that bit of pressure off it. It allows you to take a little bit more risk and 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 just really totally outperform um, uh, perform everyone. So I mean, it was again as you said, it was a race where um, you felt Binder got the win that you felt had been coming, and it looked like uh, Jorge Norvara was going to get the win, which had uh, which had been coming because again he also had a fantastic race, and in fact, the in a way, the race for second, third, and fourth was was a much more interesting than the than the race for the win. Yeah, and just before we go on to that, it's worth pointing out that I think it's the first South African. African Grand Prix win since 1981. Yes. Uh, John Eckerold in a 350 class and Binder also becomes the only the fourth South African rider to ever win a Grand Prix. Yeah, exactly. I mean, real, uh, you know, history, uh, occasionally you see history made and this was definitely one of those moments. Absolutely, yeah. Ten points if you could tell me the other three. <laughs> I, I feel like that question should be worth more than ten points. Yeah, we all know Neil that the only person with the uh, with the kind of memory to, uh, to to be able to score this is you. Ten points to you if you can name the other the, uh, all of them apart from John Eckerold. Actually, John Eckerold, Corky Ballington, and yeah. uh, and the other one I don't know. Alan North, for anyone ah, that's, uh, that's interested in knowing that, yeah. For all you uh, MotoGP nerds out there. <laughs> Look uh, at the big brain on Neil. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so... That's why, we let, that's, that's why we keep you on the podcast, Neil, because all the other shenanigans that we've had to deal with today, that makes up for it. <laughs> yeah, so, so really Binder's performance took you know attention away from in any other race what 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 down in second place would have been the the kind of the headline story uh but obviously what binder did was very very special indeed but nicolo billiga uh what he did to get that second place on the final lap was just quite staggering for a 16 year old yeah absolutely absolutely i mean he he really is completely outclassing his teammate um it was a fantastic uh, i i really thought that uh, that billiga had uh, basically 
you know, he well not lost it. I, th- I thought he was just out of contention. And then the later laps, he was uh, sort of hanging at the back of the group. He didn't really look like he was able to challenge. But it was just for a sixteen-year-old, it was an incredibly mature ride, just to sit there and uh, you know sit there, wait for the opportunity, and then actually pounce. And the the the, the pass he actually executed on the last corner was. Uh, just absolutely outstanding. Come out. I mean, there were more or less three abreast through that uh, uh, through turn twelve, which is a very very scary fast uh, uh, fast corner. And then uh, the, just the, he timed that braking into the final corner. And that again, that final corner, it, it, it's seen tragedy so often. So many people sort of slamming each other into each other and taking each other out. Um, but he timed it perfectly. Got every took took the right position. Got up the inside, uh, but yet kept enough drive to take it to the line. Yeah, we saw last year Fabio Quartz was in a similar position I think coming in to that uh, corner third in the fight for the win and he showed that you know as a youngster you can get a little bit too exuberant when you're trying to execute yeah. a two in one move uh, but Bell- Bulligan managed to do it absolutely perfectly to hold his line and keep his keep his nerve all the way to the flag I thought it was uh, with the signs of a very uh, you know quite a profound talent at work yeah, yeah, absolutely. And I also have to give uh, uh, props to Peko Banyaya, who, who finished third, because Banyaya uh, in the past, uh, he's been a bit of a loose cannon. Basically, if you had Banyaya behind you, uh, it meant you had to be terrified because uh, uh, the, you had a, about a 50% chance of, uh, of, of being taken out. And yet Banyaya, again, put some outstanding passing moves on, which were perfectly, they were tough, but really, really clean, really, uh, uh, really mature. Just a, good, a great ride by him too. So, um, you know, a South African and two Italians on the uh, uh, on the podium. That's uh, that's that's a pretty good day. Yeah, absolutely. And just another quick thing about Banyaya. If you look at where the next Mahindra is in that race, I mean, he's the only guy oh, so yeah. far in that bike this year that's been able to do anything. Yeah, exactly. Um, uh, as we were talking about a little bit about <laughs> uh, about Laverty, you know, what you do when you measure people is or, where you, or to see someone's talent, you look at where they're you look at where they're where they're the, the people on the same machinery are. And, and basically all this year so far, it's been uh, Banyaya, a, a little bit Jorge Martin um, and then the rest are absolutely nowhere absolutely JB anything you would like to add or no it sounded all good was, um, <laughs> took all the words right out of my mouth <laughs> did, did you get up for the Moto3 race JB or is that a little bit uh... but no no I, I, the only thing I would echo is it, it, it it's it's great to see the Moto2 racing getting, getting better because it did feel like it hit a doldrum for a while and you know Moto three just never seems to disappoint as far as the the on track action. It's uh, it's always been quite superb. So you know, I think I think there there are probably fans like myself who who are more MotoGP centric who are probably missing out on some really good racing if they're not watching the supporting classes. So I would just uh, probably implore listeners that are that are doing that to maybe to maybe give this round a, a watch because I think you will be entertained yeah exactly I mean I, I think for American uh, uh, f- for people in the in the US who are watching it I mean yeah I, I, I don't think I would to be perfectly honest when the uh, during the flyaways in in, in Asia for um, uh, Sepang and uh, Mategi in Australia I don't get up for the Moto3 race but I do uh, make sure that I watch the Moto3 and Moto2 and Moto3 races after um, after I've gone to the you know I after I've watched the MotoGP race because they are it's just fantastic racing and as you say yeah I mean it's great to actually see the Moto2 uh, 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 cha- the Moto2 championship become competitive again yeah 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 I the, the only thing I wish and maybe this is this is a selfish thing I wish we had uh 
a young American talent coming through Moto3 and coming through Moto2, not only because that's the gateway into MotoGP now when we want to see another, you know, American racing to MotoGP to, to help, you know, our patriotism is that is that the word I'm looking well, just for? To, but just just to just the some interest in the series yeah. that would be uh, have some, yeah, well, I'm sure. well, that's where I was getting to. Like it would be great to have someone in those series just to get people interested and and give them a reason to to get into. Because I think once you get engaged and start finding the writers that you're, you you support and, and root for, like it's it's just as worthwhile a racing experience as MotoGP, if not more so. Mm-hmm. Uh, the, the, I mean, uh, I at Austin, I spoke to um, one young American rider about uh, uh, about Moto Two, and um, I uh, learned today that there's another young American rider also interested in Moto Two. Uh, but Moto Two, I think, is a really, really dangerous class. It is so easy to get completely lost in Moto Two unless you're with a good team. If you look at, I mean, my example is always Mika Calio. Mika Calio, when he was with Mark VDS. Uh, was you know well capable of winning a championship? I don't know, but he was all you know he was runner up. Runner I up. think yeah, w- yep. once or two years in a row. Or 2014, sorry. 2014. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So he was runner up, and you know won races. Then he went to the Ital Trans team, and the Ital Trans team are just not the, the, the they're just not as good as um, as the Mark VDS team. Uh, and he was mid pack, and he's you know he he moved right back, and you see that with a lot of ta- uh, talent. So putting an American, it's not just enough to put an American on a Moto Two bike, as you saw with Josh Herring last year, um, uh, and. Three unless you ago. yeah unless you get all was it two years ago 2014 oh, yeah well yeah yes exactly yes yeah right as you saw with Josh Herring 2014 uh, unless you are uh, in the right team in the right structure <clears throat> on the right bike um, it's you, you just get completely lost and you end up um, uh, you end up doing more damage than more damage to your career than than actual progress the, uh, it, it, I think it does seem to me that the the path for American riders into MotoGP is either coming over and doing the Spanish Championship when you're 13 or 14, which I think um, Manny Casillas. There's a, there's a couple of young riders who are who are actually doing that, um, and or Jason Uribe I think is also doing the Spanish Championship. I'm not sure. Um, or you go to the World Superbike. Well, you got a World Supersport try and then try to move up to World Superbike uh, as PJ Jacobson is doing. Try to impress him, World Superbike, and then move across to uh, uh, to MotoGP because uh, uh, the 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 only non Grand Prix class, well, the the MotoGP paddock only takes the um, uh, world. They take World Superbikes half seriously, uh, <coughs> uh, and then they look very strongly to the uh, to the CEV to the uh, what they, what is now called the World uh, the Junior World Championship. They look there at the at the Moto Three class, and they will uh, uh, you know look at a rider to move up to Moto Three, Moto Two, and then Moto GP. Um, it's a rather insular approach, but um, you know they they they're judging on on what they know. Yeah, I think you bring up some some really good points there, David, because I think that that speaks volumes to really how much groundwork needs to be done, not only in America, but also abroad to bring a, or, or to have a pathway or a gateway for uh, young American riders to come into Grand Prix racing. Because it's not, it's like you said, it's not just a matter of getting them in front of a team manager and putting them in front of a team. It There needs to be a team structure in place. They need to have the right team. There needs to be 
a clear path to success. Like jo- I think Josh Heron's a great example of of everything that can go wrong in that scenario. Yeah, but if you look at Kanan Sofwoglu, Sofwoglu was, I think, but then either a one-time or a two-time World Supersport champion. What's it, how many championships, uh, World Supersport championships this, uh, did uh, Sofwoglu have when he came over? Can you remember, uh, Neil? Oh. Well, I think it was two. T- two. Yeah, so he was two. he was a double world super sport champion. Came over into you know a decent team, not a brilliant team, but a decent team, uh, and just got totally swamped. If you look at um, qualifying for Moto Two at Jerez, uh, the top twenty within a second, twenty one. Uh, the, it, the, the the margins are so small, they're so narrow that you know two tenths of a second can move you five, ten places up or down on the grid. That's that's yeah, a tough comp- environment. Yeah, and compare you- that to an American Championship where perhaps one second would cover you know top six, seven, eight riders. Um, you know, it's uh, yeah, it's like a, a different league, really. Do you guys feel that Moto2 is doing the job it needs to do in order to be a feeder series or, or uh, a uh, development ground for MotoGP riders, or does something need to change there? Uh, I spoke to one team manager this weekend, and he said literally to me, I won't, um, uh, uh, I won't be looking in Moto2 for, uh, for my next rider. Um, because it doesn't prepare them enough for, uh, <laughs> for for the step to MotoGP. The step is just too big. Um, in terms of certainly in terms of bike setup and stuff, um, it can be because you, because you're so limited. You know, you, you can't change gear settings. You can't do anything with the electronics. There's so much that you don't learn in um, uh, in Moto2. You you do learn a whole bunch of other stuff. Um, you learn a lot of, a lot of racecraft. You learn a lot of uh, geometry and that sort of thing um, you know it, it just the, the, the feel of a bike and it's a big heavy bike that you've got to throw around so it's good for your physical preparation um, but I don't think it's as good a preparation as 250s was I don't know about you Neil yeah, no, I would, I would agree with that. I think unless you are, uh, you know, quite an exceptional talent, um, like a Marquez or like a Vinales, um, you would have to say that, yeah, you don't have the the kind of the, the setup options. I remember when when Andrea Davizioso moved up to MotoGP in two thousand and eight. I think it was, uh, he was saying that you know the 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 four stroke. 800 it was was uh, was easier to ride than his 250 yeah um you know so that the you know the, the the kind of setup options available to you on a 250 grand prix bike um you know were quite numerous and you know and especially it was all about that precision that that total precision that you had to you had to master to get the absolute best out of it um and you know moto 2 i think <clears throat> you know looking at the lap times um you still have to do something quite special to you know, to rise above all that, to rise above, you know, the, the you know, the standard level in there. Um, but, you know, when compared to a 250, to a proper Grand Prix uh, prototype racing machine, you know, obviously you're, you're losing out there. Yeah, exactly. I mean, especially with the 250, in the 2008-2009, Aprilia had a, um, a fairly simple form of uh, traction control, which depended on uh, ignition timing. They were retarding the timing based on that uh, uh, they had a gyroscope. Uh, I think they had two gyroscopes and a um, and some accelerometers, which they were using to uh, uh, to change the ignition mapping, um, so they could change the the uh, the characteristic of the bike. 
like. So you could use that to set up. Um, uh, you had um, gearboxes. Well, yeah, gears and gearboxes coming out your ears. Um, you had um, uh, the, the full geometry you could set up. It was also it was also a properly narrow. Uh, bike that you could actually get proper gear, you could actually get proper lean angle with the Moto Two bike. Your uh, before you know it, you're grinding the thing on the, you're grinding the. Um, it's a very fat, wide bike uh, with a with a stock six hundred engine. So I mean, basically, we need we just need a much better six hundred engine or a much better engine to teach riders to race with. Or maybe some engine competition. Uh, the teams would, basically, the teams would boycott that. The boycott, the, the teams love Moto Two. The teams absolutely love Moto Two because it is so bloody cheap. Um, uh, you can run a Moto Two team on about half what it takes for a Moto Three team. Um, you can cover your costs. I mean, if you get one pay rider, you can cover your costs for a two rider team. Uh, it's you know a chassis is I think ninety hundred thousand euros. A um, uh, the, uh, the engine package costs twenty thirty thousand euros. You know that's that that's that's all your costs. The, 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 those are all of your costs. Um, but is that good for the sport though? Um, I don't think teams really care whether it's good for the sport. It's good for them because it means they can actually afford to go racing. Well, but that's my thing, like, right? Like, Dorna, Dorna's concern shouldn't be just for what's good for the teams. It needs to be what's good for the sport, yeah. which includes what's good for the teams. But consider, too, what's good for the fans, what's good for rider development, yeah. what's good for for, for development for, for the teams themselves. Because, like, if you have mechanics coming from Moto2 that are supposed to become MotoGP mechanics, if they have no experience setting up electronics, well, they're missing 50% of the game right there. Hey. So. Yeah, yeah, true. But I mean, a lot of it is data. Uh, the people who are working on the electronics, a lot of it is just data. So you're actually using the data to to understand what's going on with the bike, and then on the basis of that, on that, you can start adjusting stuff. And um, uh, it's uh, you can you can learn that in Moto Three. I think if you've um, uh, I think if you've got a a good background in Moto Three and a good background in Moto Two, uh, then you have enough of everything as a as a, a crew chief slash. Um, uh, you know, data engineer to actually uh, to actually go on and be be productive in MotoGP. Yeah, but that, that sounds to me like a, like a really bad game of shoots and ladders, where it's like, <laughs> okay, so you move up to you start in Moto three, and then you move up to Moto two, but then you have to move back down to Moto three to get up to Moto GP. It's just, I yeah. don't know, my my OCD is not pleased. Yeah, no, I mean it, it makes um uh, it, it would uh, it, it would definitely make sense if we had a different engine package if there was uh, uh but then this contract when does this contract run out? Neil, two the end of two thousand end of next year, I think. And it's so, yeah, yeah, yeah. But it's been, an, I think it's been announced that it's going to be a single engine supplier yeah. until you know until 2020 2021 i'm not i'm not sure of the yeah i mean figures, it's, it's, but, it's, it's um, going to be an engine it's going to be a single engine supplier and then it's just which of the super sport uh, manufacturers is it going to be because they can they can produce the engines in sufficient quantity and uh, sufficient reliability for it to actually be competitive 
Okay, well, I would like to thank both of uh, both of the guests today, uh, David and especially JB, for waking up at such an early time. Thank you, gentlemen, for joining us today. Well, thank you, thank you very much for for having me and rousing me out of bed with those those sweet sultry sounds, Neil. The, 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 there, are, there are worse there are worse sounds to wake up to than um, uh, <laughs> than Neil's dulcet tones. You know, I, I have to be honest though; like it, it it's been really hard to stay awake on this podcast because I just want to close my eyes and listen to Neil talk, and you know, he just. <laughs> takes me just takes me to dreamland every time as i said earlier i really hope you are robust with the editing of this show je no i think we're gonna leave it all in neil i think we're gonna leave it all in okay well anyway thank you gentlemen for joining us and thank you listener for listening to this edition of the paddock pass podcast Uh, if you enjoy the show and listen to it through itunes please remember to leave us a rating and a review it greatly helps other MotoGP enthusiasts find the show also one more thing be sure to follow us on facebook that's facebook.com slash paddock pass podcast and also on twitter at paddock pass pods thanks again and see you guys next time It's wise that we we look a little bit at what happened on Thursday. Um, on Thursday, there was a press conference which um, basically announced. Um, oh fuck! Sorry, I've got lost there. <laughs> okay, um, you're still in your house. What's it? <laughs> yeah. I mean, if you need if you need if you need help, like metaphysically, we can talk after the show, Neil. But you know, you're, started, you're still right here. Yeah, he's probably started <laughs> wandering okay. onto, onto the subject of naughty ladies. <laughs> Yeah, exactly. Okay. But but Apologies. what I think you wanted to talk about was the press conference and, and Lorenzo moving to Ducati. Yeah, okay. So basically uh